Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, November 6th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, coronavirus cases are surging nationwide. We check in with the Medical Association on the status of the pandemic in the Magnolia State. Then, Mississippians overwhelmingly voted to approve a medical marijuana program. But the federally controlled substance will create banking hurdles for all involved. Plus, we speak to the Commissioner of Insurance about Medicare enrollment. This is Mississippi Edition on NPB Think Radio. While many eyes are on the tabulation of votes in key swing states of Tuesday's election, the pandemic problem in the United States is becoming more severe. Yesterday, there were over 120,000 new cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. That's a new single-day high for the country. Over 1,600 of those cases were reported in Mississippi, marking the state's highest single-day report since July 30th. The health department says the number also includes some backlogged cases. But Dr. Claude Brunson with the Mississippi Medical Association says the rate of infections is climbing. He tells our Desiree Frazier it could take another statewide mask mandate like the one in August to reduce infections. What we actually experienced was when the statewide mask mandate um, went away is that uh, it seems as if the public thought that the virus was for the most part defeated and, and, and had gone away. Uh, and certainly that was not the case. And then we saw what um, was predictable is that we saw and are seeing a significant surge. And as you can see, the numbers have um, gotten to, to a very high level. Transmission is going on at a very high rate throughout the community. Well, at this point, we know what it would take to fight it because we've been hearing about it for these seven to eight months. So how do we move forward from here? Well, we, we've got to get back to doing those things that, that we were doing when we suppressed transmission uh, during the statewide mask mandate. Now, the easiest thing would be for us to have another statewide mask mandate. What we know, we found in our state and other states is citizens will respond appropriately um, to those sorts of orders. Uh, when the governor says that we need to do sort of do these things to protect our ourselves, our loved ones, our communities, the public will respond. And we saw that response uh, from our public. But when the order was lifted, it gave the, the uh, a large percentage of the public um, the idea that, well, the threat is gone and we can go back to our norm. 
and our norm about how we interact um, would lead to increased transmission of the virus in the population, and that's exactly what happened. So the things that we did to suppress the virus several months ago are the things that we need to do now. Well, there are counties that have a mass mandate, but that isn't enough. Um, that 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 isn't enough. I think based upon how what the uh, transmission rate is now in the community, and as I've said, and, and a lot of us have said from the medical scientific uh, community, what we've said is the virus has no respect of county borders or city limits. Um, and our, our, our citizens are traveling freely back and forth. And so as long as that is going on, you're not going to be able to, to, to adequately suppress the virus. And this, you, you might remember, um, when we, before we got to the statewide mask mandate, we went through a series of adding on counties. And that helped a little bit, but it wasn't until we got to a statewide mask mandate that we really saw the numbers start to fall as far as the number of cases, uh, new cases that we were experiencing um, uh, in the state. And that's what it's going to take now. So are you talking to the governor at all about this? Yeah, I think I think the governor is aware that, that we still believe that uh, a statewide mask mandate was the appropriate thing to do. Um, and, you know, obviously we're, we're speaking uh, uh, purely from a public health and medical science standpoint. And we, we understand that he needs to, he has to take into consideration the economy and, and all those sorts of things. But it has also been, been our stance that if you take care of the virus, if you keep transmission of the virus low, that's what will allow you to open up the economy and keep it open across the state as much as you can. So you can't do one without the other. Well, Dr. Brunson, Executive Director of the Mississippi Medical Association, thank you so much for your insight and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much. Several weeks ago, the governor placed 16 counties under a mask mandate, including Benton, Harrison, Madison, and Neshoba counties. The order also required hospital capacity for COVID-related admissions. Tim Moore, president of the Mississippi Hospital Association, says hospitals have had to adapt during the pandemic. Our hospitals had to make some major uh, adaption uh, when, when this thing first hit. When the first wave came through, uh, it was unlike anything our hospitals had ever seen, anything they'd ever experienced, and it was a learning process all the way through. They have adapted. They have put measures in place. They've put safeguards in place, not only for uh, their staff, but for patients and for visitors. Uh, as you know, we still are very limited uh, on on visitors. Um, I'm no exception to that. I had a, a grandson born yesterday, and I was unable to go see my grandson. Oh, I won't be able to see him. So, well, thank you, I, I, but I won't be able to see him until he gets home. So, and that's just that—that's the way it is. It, it's a safeguard to take care of patients in the hospitals. So, um, uh, I mean, we've just got to learn to live with that right now. It's not—it's uh, not anything that any of us want or enjoy, but that's what we have to. Uh, we just have to abide by those rules right now till we find a way around this. For healthcare workers, how are they managing? Because this has been months like on high alert almost? 
Yeah, that is a great question. I, I appreciate very much you asking that because it is um, it is a challenge for our healthcare workers, um, not only physically but uh, but mentally, um, to continue to battle this. Uh, they have done an outstanding job, and uh, I tell you, healthcare workers are very resilient, and they uh, they know what they have to do um, as they um, as they prepare for each day. Uh, to take care of patients, and and uh, I, I'm always amazed by uh, staff rises to uh, a whole new level in situations like that. Well, with COVID, we've got to see an entire hospital do that, all the staff, uh, not just the direct patient caregivers, but the entire staff have risen to a new level to take care of the needs and not only support that patient, but support the rest of the staff and support each other to keep things moving and keep things going forward. And it's just a, it's been a phenomenal situation. And um, so I, I, I say they're tired, um, they, uh, uh, but they keep going. They, they keep taking care of patients. Well, Tim Moore with the Mississippi Hospital Association, thank you for sharing your insight on this topic. Thank you so so much for asking. Mississippi's cumulative total number of cases since March 11th is 123,887 with 3,405 related deaths. Coming up, Mississippians overwhelmingly voted to approve a medical marijuana program, but the federally controlled substance will create banking hurdles for all involved. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you had Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As the process to develop a medical marijuana program in Mississippi begins, bankers are warning people who want to get involved in the industry about a lack of access to banking for legal cannabis companies. Since marijuana is still federally illegal, all money generated by cannabis-related businesses are considered illegal funds, even if that business operates in compliance with state law. Gordon Fellows is CEO and president of the Mississippi Bankers Association. He explains the financial hurdles of the medical marijuana program with our Ashley Norwood. In essence, we have a conflict between state and federal law in Mississippi now, right? Uh, And we're not the only state. There are 33-plus other states that have this conflict between state and federal law. On one hand, federal law, and, and specifically the Bank Secrecy Act, which governs how banks treat money laundering uh, and illicit finance activities. Um, The Bank Secrecy Act says that uh, banks cannot um, provide financial services uh, that benefit um, controlled substance uh, or benefit, you know, the sale or distribution of anything that violates the Controlled Substance Act. And marijuana violates the Controlled Substance Act. So um, it is illegal to bank uh, the proceeds directly related to the sale of marijuana. Um, 
it's also uh, a pretty big legally gray area um, to provide banking services to what, what are known as marijuana related businesses or MRBs. Those are businesses that provide services to marijuana distributors. And so, um, so that's under federal law. Now, under state law, now since, since Initiative 65 passed, it, it will now be legal um, for doctors to prescribe and patients to take medicinal marijuana um, to, to treat medical ailments. Um, and, and therein sort of lies the conflict. And that's that's even with money being generated by a program that's in state law. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. But even technically, taxes that the state collects from that business are technically illegal funds and cannot be deposited at a bank. You know, like I said, there are 30-plus other states that are doing things now in this space. And, and there's some stuff that our banks are going to have to learn from from banks in those states, but 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 it, it all is in a very gray legal area. Um, there's a solution to it, right? There's a bill in front of Congress that would create a bank safe harbor uh, and give banks a presumption to say if a, if a state uh, has legalized uh, a form of, of either recreational or medicinal marijuana. Then, then if that's a legal business under state law, then the bank can provide banking services. Um, that, that's different than, than, than legalizing marijuana at the federal level. You know, until that bill passes, there will be sort of broad and complicated legal ramifications in Mississippi for businesses that provide services to marijuana businesses. And, and that's really, you know, our message is I'm not so concerned and, and our banks aren't so concerned about um, banking or taking deposits for, for the growers or the distributors of, of the drug. We're really concerned about the folks in the Delta that sell fertilizer. That, that's really where it gets complicated for banks. The businesses that are downstream on the payment cycle that would provide direct or indirect services to, to a business that grows or sells marijuana. So they're, they're all of a sudden, there's all these new sort of layers of risk that banks are going to have to consider for any business that has any type of react, any, any type of relationship, direct or indirect, with anybody that might grow or sell marijuana. It, it, it will be very complicated. Um, and and our, our message to, to small businesses around the state is, you know, don't be surprised if you find out, you know, from your bank starts asking you questions you would not otherwise expect them to ask you. Or um, if you if you lose access to banking services for a little while, just because this we're going to have to work through uh, as an industry how banks provide services to businesses under this state law that conflicts with federal law. And why is it important to um, raise the issue now to inform uh, businesses now? It's a an often overlooked wrinkle. To the, to the national conversation that's going on state by state uh, about whether or not to legalize cannabis. Um, but we wanted to make sure Mississippians understood before the vote um, that, that there is a financial services wrinkle to this conversation. We wanted to make sure everybody had a chance to sort of think about that as they, uh, as they considered voting for 65, voting for 65A or, or voting no. Uh, and, and, you know, we had plenty of people ask us questions about it since that. 
And now that 65 has passed, is there anything uh, businesses can be doing now? I believe a program wouldn't be in place until at least next summer, but is there something they should know now or be doing now to kind of prepare for any interruption in financial services? Um, that is a good question. I think the best thing um, that business owners can do is, is, is talk to their local banker about this. Banks are going to have to figure out how to work with each customer based on that customer's risk profile, based on that customer's um, business model, and based on that customer's exposure to the industry, um, the, the marijuana industry. So if I'm a small business owner, I would probably want to talk to my banker before the program goes live to make sure I avoid any potential issues. All right, Gordon Fellows, uh, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate your perspective on this. Yeah, thank you for reaching out, Ashley. It's always good to talk. Over two-thirds of Mississippians voted to allow medical marijuana in Tuesday's election. Nearly three in four selected Initiative 65 over the legislature's alternative. Coming up, we speak to the Commissioner of Insurance about Medicare enrollment. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The open enrollment period for Medicare runs through December 7th. Seniors have the chance to update Medicare health or prescription coverage during this time. Medicare is a federal insurance program comprised of four parts that is administered by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. And while the Mississippi Department of Insurance does not regulate Medicare plans, Commissioner Mike Cheney says his department is there to assist Mississippians who have questions about enrollment. If you've just turned 65, you automatically are enrolled in Medicare by the Social Security Administration. Uh, if you haven't paid Social Security taxes over, let's say for some reason, uh, be certain and contact the Social Security office within your county of where you live, and that's easy to find if you have an internet or you can go to your local library that can tell you, and call them. You don't have to go there. You can call them and tell you how to contact them. You need to be enrolled in Medicare if you're 65 or older. And certain young people with disabilities can be enrolled in Medicare, along with people that have early stages of kidney failure, uh, what we call early stage or end-stage retinal renal disease. And uh, if you've had a transplant, you're eligible for Medicare on some, you know, some cases. Now, here's the thing that's tricky about Medicare. You get Part A when you, you turn 65. That's automatic. But if you if you are 65, you've got to have a Part B, and a failure to buy a Part B can result in a lifetime penalty of increase in premiums when you actually do buy some coverage that will uh, qualify under Part B. Part B includes 
Uh, you can buy D coverage, which would cover drugs, or E or L or C coverage. They're all different coverages. Now, if you buy an Advantage plan, you need to remember that it's real hard to go back to regular Medicare. Why is that? Well, the the government subsidizes, the U.S. government, through the Department of Health and Human Services, subsidizes the purchase of Medicare Advantage plans to the companies that sell these plans. The danger is that when you buy a Medicare Advantage plan, some of the uh, doctors that you normally see would not be in that Medicare Advantage plan's network, and you would not be able to see the doctor that you normally had seen. You need to check that out before you ever change a plan. If you turn 65 and you're still working and under an insurance plan through work, do you still have to enroll for Part B in Medicare? If you're still working and you have health insurance coverage under your employer and you're over 65, that counts as Part B until you decide to end your employment. And at that point, you either have to have private insurance, which would qualify as Part B, a retirement-type insurance plan. TRICARE would be a good example, state employees' retirement plan, and several companies have health insurance under their retirement plan. You have to pay for that insurance unless you're a federal employee, so you have to keep your premium paid, but that qualifies as a Part B. The the reason most people do not keep their insurance, uh, some people, if they have the money, will keep it after they retire, but most people let it go because a Part B private insurance plan may cost you five or $600 a month at a, as a retiree where you can buy a D plan, Part D, or F plan for less than $300. And the other part of this puzzle is that uh, spouses may have different needs. One spouse may have a lot of uh, drug needs, may have a different health issue from the other spouse who has very few drug needs but may have uh, diabetes may not have diabetes. Let's say they um, have a heart disease, which uh, the only thing you normally would take would be blood thinners and et cetera. So be certain that uh, you don't buy a plan that says one size fits all for each spouse. Know what's needed. And if you're in doubt, you can go to the website of www.medicare.gov and they will send you to the right place. You can go to the Social Security. Just Google it. It's the best way to say it uh, if you have an Internet connection and access to a computer. What about a Medicare Medicare gap coverage? What is that? Well, gap coverage covers uh, the, the shortfall between the time that you become eligible for Medicare and the time that you can enroll in Part B. That's usually a three-month period of time. Um, and that gives you some type of coverage in case you get sick. And in addition, once you are on Part B and A under Medicare, the gap coverage can provide you with another source of paying bills. But um, if you had private insurance as Part B, that becomes your primary insurance, and then Medicare is your secondary insurance. In other words, the first people to pay a claim would be your private insurance. Gap coverage helps you cover that. It sounds complicated, but it's, it's really just it's, a, it's another form of coverage to be certain that you don't fall into what we call a donut hole and end up with no coverage at all, if you will. It is confusing. It is. Uh, it, all right, so let's say you uh, – you retire from work sometime next year after this enrollment period, so next 
March, you retire. Can you enroll in Medicare then, or do you have to wait until the next enrollment period? No, you can. If you're 65 or older and um, you retire, you can get your Part B at any time. You automatically enroll when you become 65, and it's extremely important that you get enrolled if you turn 65. Part B, if you still have insurance, can wait until you actually retire now. I've talked about Part B is what we call original Medicare, and original Medicare doesn't cover things like vision or dental or hearing aids or a lot of other little issues. But if you buy um, a higher plan like a, a G or an F, they would cover these or even an advantage plan. So uh, we tell people to be certain what you're buying, and if in doubt, go to the website and read all of the issues that are put out there and the frequently asked questions and answers that are provided by uh, Medicare.gov. Call the Department of Insurance. We'll direct you to a SHIP program, and that's a senior health insurance program where we have people that are qualified to explain to you what type of Medicare coverage you may need. The number to call if you want to call the Department of Insurance is 1-800-562-2957. And just ask for someone and uh, that can help you with Medicare issues. Insurance Commissioner Mike Cheney, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Karen, and thank MPB. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.